Dead Bodies is not for the squeamish and is intended for mature audiences. I'm just going to start straight my story uh, because I'm terrified. We've had another negative feedback. Yes, <laughs> go, from, read it. Uh, it's from Nicole. She doesn't, you know, you can recommend or not recommend on Facebook. She doesn't recommend Dead Bodies podcast. I oh. know oh, it's like a knife to the heart. Mm. Uh, too much waffling of a personal nature. Get on with the good stuff, girls, she said. And so I thought I'll be polite. I acknowledged. Nah, back stuff to her you, and Nicole. Said, We're going to nut. Stop her. No. No, she's. This is why I won't let you manage the Facebook. So we're going to say, stuff you, Nicole. We're going to get on with the show. Do your story. Don't even bother reading it. No, hang on. Give it back. Stop tearing it up. I I did reply to her. It's too late. I already did. I said to her, noted, thanks, Nicole, which I thought was quite businesslike of me, considering my heart was broken. Thanks, Nicole. Love the admin team. You know how you get those emails? There's no name. It's just the fuckers. They just write admin team. You're like, who are you? I need a name. Anyway. She came back at me. What did she write back? She wasn't accepting that. Oh. As a, you know, she knew she'd been brushed off. Oh, uh, see, she this came, is what happened. She came back with, I always have to fast forward the first 10 minutes. And then she did an emoji face that's like it's in severe pain, horrible terror, like oh. mm, she's so like appalled by the first 10 minutes. All right. So what my idea is that we just – Cram everything into the first 10 minutes and then we'll say hi to Nicole. Kirsten, can you give me a little mark? And then we'll welcome Nicole at the 10-minute mark. So, Nicole, start fast-forwarding or not. You never know. You might miss something really good. Go and hit Nicole with your story. Righto. Uh, this has been described as one of the most brutal and bizarre crimes that Australia has ever seen. The dead body of a man found with 75% of his blood missing was gone. Mm, October 20, 1989. Gentleman by the name of Edward Baldock. He was 47, council worker, a father of five. Apparently a very gentle and well-liked man. Lots Uh, of fathers of five being murdered in my history of murders. Really? Mm. It's unfair, all those children, to be mm. without a father. Just stop at four. He was... Lessons your chance. That's true. Sorry. No, you Keep know what going. you're talking about. Mm. Don't play Russian roulette with babies mm. and lives. Uh, he was having some drinks with his friends at the Caledonia Club in Brisbane's Kangaroo Point. It was about midnight. He'd had quite a few. It was Friday night. Mm-hmm. And he was drunk Fair. and apparently holding onto a pole and couldn't find a taxi. So he decided to walk home. Now, at the same time, can I just say That's how it always starts? I got they decided this from to a, walk home a, from a number of different stories, and also um, had a read of a chapter in this book, the Australian book, book of True Crime by Larry Writer, which I got in an op shop for like what did I pay for it? Five bucks. Uh, yes, I also read from him, but. It mentions in there so many times, they, they actually call them the lesbian vampire killers. And so many times in the, That's in the chapter. That's a lot to take in a, in a title. It keeps, Lesbians it must have been like so fascinating for them. They just kept saying lesbian. And there's actually no point anywhere where I can find it to be even vaguely relevant that she was lesbian. It's never relevant. <laughs> no, it's not. So I'll just drop that part the, of it. I don't say the straight vampire killers, <laughs> but of course, 
That's that's exactly mm. what I was getting at, yeah. So while he was staggering, looking for a taxi, he started to walk home. At the L'Amour Lesbian Nightclub, there it is. That's why. What in, happened at um, the Lesbian Nightclub? In Fortitude Valley. But even there, it's not relevant. Oh. It doesn't matter what was going on in the nightclub because this is not where it happens. There were four young women there and they plotted to pick up a man. Oh. I've just realised why it is relevant, but I'll get to that. That's confusing. Uh, so the girls left the club they were in at 11.30 and they hopped into oh, a green... so the lesbians... Yes, there are four of them in a car. <laughs> they want to pick up a man. Yes. Okay. So maybe there is a little bit of relevance there. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's relevant because of the relationship between one of them and the other three and the the kind of hold she had on them. So there no, was a... I mean it's more confusing because they're lesbians and they want to pick up a man. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know. I know. This is confusing, but go. Well, it depends what they want to pick him up for. Let's keep going, shall we? Uh, they climbed into the Green Holden Commodore. They went cruising the streets and in the car, 24-year-old Tracy Wigginton, Lisa... Taschinski, who was 24, Kim Jarvis was 23, and Tracy War was also 23. They pulled up to Edward Baldock, and Tracy asked him if he wanted to have sex with her, which he did. What? So he hopped in, and they drove to Orley Park on the Brisbane River. So Tracy left the three others in the car and walked into the bush with Edward. She took off her shirt. She left him for a moment, and he got undressed next to the wall of a shed At the South Brisbane Sailing Club, he left his socks on. This is not victim blaming, but just a general useful tip for guys. Don't leave, don't stop laughing, Kirsten. Don't leave your socks on. This is all sorts of confusing. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I shouldn't have dwelled on that. My life is so normal. With socks on? Well, just. Yeah, I know. This doesn't happen to me. Mm, I know. He was drunk. So he folded his clothes and I'm not sure why, but he pushed his wallet under the edge of the roller door of the club that he was getting undressed next to. Mm. Tracy Wigginton came back with, she says, Lisa Taskinski. It's a very hard name to say. Lisa. Taskinski, Lisa. And she plunged a long-bladed knife up to the hilt into Edward's neck, into his spinal cord. What? She ordered Lisa back to the car and over the next few minutes she was described as being like a shark in a feeding frenzy. She stabbed him 27 times in the back, the neck, the side, the throat and the chest. She grabbed his hair, slashed his throat. He was still alive. She stabbed him again in the neck. His spinal cord was almost cut through and the two main arteries in his neck were severed. So she escalated. It's That's escalated Mm. very quickly. She sat down, smoked a cigarette and watched him die. And she later told police, but she felt nothing. She threw the knife into the Brisbane River, washed her arms, uh, went up to the car, got the rest of the girls and brought them down to see what she'd done. One of the girls stayed in the car. Tracy Tracy Waugh stayed in the car. Um, The other three girls would later say that they could smell blood on Tracy Wigginton's breath. Five o'clock next morning, a jogger found the body uh, and police found his wallet under the sailing club door so they were able to identify him pretty quickly. Um, And next to his body, in one of his shoes, was a Commonwealth Bank bank card and the name on it was Miss T. Wigginton. Oh. Yes. So straight away they they know who they're looking for. Back at 
Tracy Wigginton's home that same morning, she realised that she'd lost her bank card. Mm. So she got her girlfriend, who wasn't one of the girls in the car, she actually was go look for cheating it. on her girlfriend, Debbie, with Lisa, who was with her that night. Yeah, she got Debbie to drive her to Orley Park. And when she saw the police there, she said, oh, my God, it's real. She went home again and three hours later, the police knocked on the door. And at first she was quite aggressive about denying the murder, but then eventually they got her to confess. Uh, Police interviewed the other girls who they described as scared shitless. And eventually all four of them were charged with murder. In February 1990, they were committed to stand trial in Brisbane's Supreme Court. Now, several psychiatrists had a look at Tracy Wigginton and they found her to be what they described as very complex and disturbed. She was physically, she was a big woman, very mm. commanding personality, and she had convinced the others that she had supernatural powers and could make herself disappear. And this is where I'm thinking is possibly the only relevance to the gazillion mentions of her being lesbian or of them being lesbians is that if there was a bit of sexually charged energy there, that would possibly help her have more power if they were attracted to her and she was attracted to them, it might just change that. No, you're not buying that? No, it's just because they, were, it it's just the they dynamic. were at a lesbian club. That's why they called them all lesbians. No, but don't you think if there, if there is a you know an element of them wanting to – If there's a, if she's the cool girl. Yeah. Mm, and and they're attracted to her in that way. And, she, you know, if there's that, that element of sexual attraction there, I, I do think it changes the dynamic somewhat. Um, Tracy made the others watch a video over and over again of someone's head being blown off by a shotgun. She said to them that she wondered what it would be like to kill. She sharpened a knife and she talked Lisa into cutting her wrists and letting her suck the blood. Note to self, Mm? if your friends start saying that they want to know what it's like to kill someone, stop hanging out with them immediately. Mm Mm-hmm. Leave the house. Or if they ask, Sorry, kick you the or table. if they want to suck blood or anything. Are we 10 minutes in yet? Yeah, just, just gone. Welcome to the podcast, Nicole. <laughs> You've missed a whole bunch of good stuff. Sorry, I don't know what's going Welcome, on. Welcome, Nicole. Glad to have you here. Uh, let me see. Lisa told um, the police that Tracy Wigginton would regularly buy pig and cow blood from the butcher to drink. Ooh. And the night before the murder, Tracy Wigginton had said she had a need to feed on a victim's blood. There is nothing else that tastes like blood. What does it taste like? You know what it tastes like, like yeah. when you go to the dentist or like when your teeth bleed or like you, you suck on a cut on your finger, it's, you know? It's yeah, weird. minerally sort of taste. It's a real gross taste. Mm. Well, it's not gross. It would be in large amounts. I can't imagine. A forensic... That's new. Don't know where that word mm. came from. Forensic psychiatrist Donald Grant interviewed Tracy Wigginton while she was in custody after she'd been arrested, and he said he detected a hint of relish. And I don't mean like tomato relish or something. Relish as in that she loved she what loved she it. was doing, and a degree of sadism in the pain that she had inflicted. Um, other psychiatric assessors looked at her, and they said that she had six different alters, which is multiple personalities. Oh, that's so interesting. Or what do they call it in court now? Dissociative Uh, Identity Disorder. Yeah, something like that. I I didn't actually know that. I read it. Under hypnosis, she'd speak in different voices. Now, Big Tracy was a mixture of all of them. Bobby was an aggressive and callous 16-year-old boy 
described by Big Tracy as a wimp. Little Tracy was a frightened child. The observer was calm and rational. And there was a personality called April, uh, thought to be the one that was in control on the night of the murder, although there was some discussion that it might have been Bobby, the the boy personality. And this April personality that possibly is the one that did the murder was named after her violent adoptive mother, and I'll get to her childhood in a second. Um, She'd suffered sexual abuse as a child, and they're thinking that that had contributed to this mental condition. A clinical psychologist by the name of Dr. James Clark examined her under hypnosis, and he said that the Bobby personality claimed responsibility for the killing and said that he was angry and all of them was me killing many, many people, anyone who has ever hurt me. Um, and he also said, this Dr. Clark also suggested that it was the observer personality that put Tracy's credit card into the shoe so that Bobby, the other personality, would get caught. That's exhausting. It is a bit, isn't Imagine it? Imagine if you had all those personalities in the same body fighting against each other all the mm. time. Mm. It would be hard, wouldn't it? Uh, He was convinced, this Dr. Clark, that she was not faking the different personalities. And when he spoke to her not under hypnosis, he said she was unable to comprehend that her hands had actually killed someone. So just to go into her background for for a moment, um, there was a couple called George and Avril Wigginton. They were very wealthy, but they couldn't have children. So they adopted two girls called Rhonda and Darrell. Um, both of those girls, it was alleged later in court, were whipped by the couple and the father, George, sexually abused them. Why do people do that? Why adopt kids and then brutalise them? I don't. I'm not saying that it's okay to do well, it to your actual kids. But, but was it for that reason? They said that um, the mother would tell them that when they grew up, men would do horrible things to them, which mm. makes me wonder whether... George was doing horrible things to her as well, and that's she was kind of warning the girls. Uh, so one of those two girls, Rhonda, left home, married, had a baby. The marriage failed. She moved back into the house with her baby. That baby was Tracy Wigginton, the vampire killer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the baby was also adopted by what were her grandparents. Got you. Yeah. Um, she said that her grandfather sexually abused her from an early age until she was about 11 or 12. She uh, and her life from here is just chaotic. She uh, fell pregnant to the husband of a family friend, had an abortion. She had her first lesbian relationship with that man's partner. Um, She had a volcanic temper at the age of 15. Her grandfather died and another man was trying to get close to her grandmother and apparently she attacked this man, broke his nose, drove his hearing aid into his ear canal and slashed his fingers. And another time she went berserk, destroying a whole house full of belongings of her her mother and her mother's, her her auntie. Um, She painted swastikas and filth on the walls, put sand in the washing machine, scratched obscenities on their car. Um, She'd been cruel to animals. Is that a familiar theme for you? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, one time it was said she broke a cat's back and she'd strangled a budgie at one point. Um, she said that when her anger took her, uh, it took a long time to build up, but when it did, she completely lost control. And Dr. Grant, who had examined her, said in killing poor Edward Baldock, 
Tracy took revenge on all her past abusers. Her innate killer instinct was released by an overwhelming rage welling up from her past and influencing her present. Now, another one of the accused, Lisa, whose surname I can't say, Ptaschinski. Yep. Uh, She'd also had a very hard life. She'd been admitted to hospital more than 80 times over five years for drug overdoses and self-mutilation injuries. Uh, She says she let Tracy Wigginton drink her blood to keep in her good books. Mm. In the weeks leading up to the murder... um, the three others that weren't Tracy Wigginton, they said that they actually believed that Tracy Wigginton was a vampire. They'd had a picnic at the Two Wong Cemetery and took home a headstone. So it's not normal behaviour, is it? So anyway, let's skip the to two the... Wong Cemetery. Two Wong Cemetery. Two Wong. Two Wong. Two Wong. Don't know. I don't know how it's said. People that injure animals. I know. But isn't it always a precursor? So I accidentally saw dog torturing video. Oh, no. Because it was on my Instagram feed and someone had – no, it was on my Twitter feed and someone had commented on it and it was from that Chinese festival where they tortured dogs. Oh, it's horrible. Yes. I can't – my brain couldn't deal with that. Yeah. And I've, as we all know, have seen heaps of horrific shit. Mm. I could not – I went online and, like, with one eye closed, I signed every petition to end that festival. Yeah. I can't look. I can't look at that. Do you know why they do it? Because I looked up why they do it. No, why? So they do it because they believe that torturing dogs obviously makes them scared and they like to do it in front of – they like to torture dogs in front of other dogs because it gets the blood rushing through their bodies and they think that it makes the meat more tender to eat. Oh, no. Mm, Do not Google it. No, I won't. I'm massively, I'm massive on Googling it, but no one Google it. I'm telling you, even if you think you want to see it, you don't. No, you don't. It's horrific. I watch a lot of crap TV, but mm. one of the shows is Beverly Hills, Housewives of Beverly Hills. And uh, Lisa Vanderpump is a huge animal lover because she campaigns like ferociously. It's a silly fluff show, but it's worth watching just for her and the work that she does in trying to stop that festival from happening. She's, she's, Got quite I can't a even following. watch it. I could. I reckon I could watch a human be murdered before I watched those videos. Mm. I couldn't. Awful. Yeah. Don't. There's a special place in Satan's c word for those people. There is uh, too much. So court. No, okay. no, that's all right. Okay. That's fair enough too. Mm. Um, Tracy Wigginton's defence team. They said that because she suffered from this dissociative identity disorder, she was therefore not guilty by way of insanity. But a judge ruled that she was fit to stand trial. Two months before the trial was due to start, she pleaded guilty to murder. So mm. they ended up having a hearing that took only nine minutes. She was sentenced to life with a minimum of thirteen years. Lisa Tastinsky with a minimum of thirteen years. Yeah. Oh, it's not a lot. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Wait till the end of the story. Sorry. Lisa Saskinski was also convicted of murder. She got life. Jarvis got 18 years, reduced to 12 for manslaughter, and war was cleared. Eddie Baldock's son, Shane, said at the time that they should rot in jail. His father was the most gentle man who was killed mercilessly. Mm. Now, as you pointed out, rather short parole yeah. period. Tracy Wigginton was released in 2012. I think she was 46 at the time. She'd served 23 years of her sentence. To this day, she denies drinking Eddie Baldock's blood, even though the others in the car said that they could smell it on her breath. Uh, Dr. Grant wrote a book on the case. It's called 
killer instinct having a mind for murder. And in that, he said that she gained certificates to drive a bobcat and a forklift while she was behind bars. She completed a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy and Anthropology. Um, and she planned at the time she left prison to change her name, so possibly has a different name now. But he says that statistics would suggest that by now the risk of further violence, especially murder, is much reduced by her age and the effects of a long period in mm. custody. 23 years is a long time. Mm. He said that she'll be under parole supervision for the rest of her life. Lisa Daskinski, she was released in 2008 and Jarvis is also out of jail. So they're all Mm. roaming around. Don't. I feel like if you take a life, you should just get life. That I think is correct. Yes. Yeah. I'm all for putting people in the bin. I agree. You've got actual court documents there. What have you I got? Know, I made a discovery. Ooh. I was looking up old coroner's court documents and I have realised there are a lot of random remains just hanging about. What do you mean? Oh. On Tuesday the 13th of March 2012, tradesmen undertaking electrical rewiring of an unoccupied premises at, it has the address there, I won't read it out, located a shopping bag containing what appeared to be a replica of a human skull. Police were contacted and the remains were transported to the coroner's court of Victoria. A police investigation revealed that the remains were likely to have been in the possession of the late Dr Ernest Richard Edwards, who was born in 1901 and had died in 1966, who had formerly resided at that location and had practised as a GP. So they found... The tradies found it. ...a real human skull. My husband's a tradie. You would not believe the stuff they find in In walls, in in roofs, under floors. I'm not done. And he brings it home. Never a skull, though. On 29th of November 2010, Dr. James, I don't know if I should be reading these people's names out, we'll just say Dr. James, a physician specialising in endocrinology, mm-hmm. attended at the Mooney Ponds Police Station to hand over a human pelvis. The human pelvis had been given to him when he was a medical student in 1996. Police took possession of the pelvis and had it medically examined. The coroner concluded it was a human pelvis. But how old? As in, I don't mean, was it 10 years? A lot of the times they can't work it out. Like, is it from the 1800s? Sometimes they just... Or last week? On the 5th of November 2010, the following human skeletons were collected by senior constable, insert name, from the Endeavour College of Natural Health at 360 Elizabeth Street, Melbourne. The college had contacted police and asked that they collect a number of skeletal remains that they had previously used for teaching purposes. Police took possession of the remains and they were conveyed to the coroner's court of Victoria. Whose bodies are these that have been just passed around? Under floors and things. On the 25th of February 2010, Miss Veronica surname, attended at Caulfield Police Station and relinquished a skeleton which she described as having been in her possession for some time. It was purchased by Veronica from the Mentone Education Centre on the 7th of February 1984 when she was a teacher of fine arts. She produced a receipt in relation to the purchase. What? (laughs) There's many pages and much highlighting has happened. I'm telling you. And I'm loving every minute of it. So it sounds like just about everybody except me has got a human skeleton in their house. On the 7th of February 2009, massive fires swept <laughs> swept through a residential area. 
Following the fires, remains were located by a disaster victim identification unit working on the retrieval of persons missing as a result of the bushfires. These were the Black Saturday fires. Oh. Big fires in Victoria. Yep. Over 100 people died. It was 173, possibly more in the end, yeah. The remains located appeared to be almost totally burnt. A forensic anthropologist, Professor Chris Briggs, located what appeared to be a mandible and some other pieces of human skull. Mm. These remains were conveyed to the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. Dr. Ranson examined three separate bags. In the first bag, he found a collection of fine fragments of bone, which included identifiable portions of the base of a skull, together with portions of a skull vault. I don't know what that is. Who had that in? So someone had it in their house. In the second bag, he found a moderate number of largely charred fragments of tooth. In the third bag, he found some more apparent fabric-like material together with what appeared to be portions of a zip. Also contained within this bag was a clear plastic container containing three bubble-wrapped specimens, which on opening contained portions of facial bones, including portions of lower jaw and small fragments of bone, possibly representing some upper jaw. The owner of the property was contacted on the 5th of May 2011. She advised that the family had a skull which had been given to them by a friend who had obtained it from a retired doctor. It had been kept in the study, which is where it appeared to be located by the DVI team. The skull had been hinged and had been a medical specimen according to the advice given by the family. So people just must have, every self-respecting house had a body in it or a bone, a skelling bones. it's literally like they are just hanging about. Wow. I'm not done. Oh, no, I didn't think you were. Mm. Should that be? Should I say my wow to the very end? Yeah. Okay, I will. Um, sit very quietly. During the same fires, at the back of a property located in the shed of a rear residential home in Marysville in the wake of massive fires on the 7th of February 2009, remains were located by the Disaster Victim Identification Unit. These remains were conveyed to the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. Dr. Ranson, he's back, advised that the remains were comprised of large portions of human bones which appeared extremely light, indicating they were probably dried prior to the fire. On examination, they found an almost complete vertebral column together with portions of sacrum, long bone shafts, skull base, skull vault, pelvis, jaws, ribs, and digits. Where would they get these from in the olden days? Do you police think? contacted the current owners of the property who advised the police that the property had been purchased from a doctor. Oh, you wacky doctors. Police contacted the doctor who was not aware of the specimen being at the address and stated that he had sold his model many years ago to an orthopaedic student. Neither party could assist any further with the information as to how that specimen ended up at that address. I suppose they have to carefully check it that it's not someone who was, you know, murdered a week ago or a recent missing person. On September 9, 2010, (laughs) Miss Dredger attended the Malvern Police Station and handed to police human skeletal remains, which she described as having been acquired by her parents in and around 1937 or 1938. On September 10, 2010, the remains were examined by a forensic pathologist... Uh, who confirmed that the specimen had wires through it Mm. and suspension points inside the skull. I'm not sure what that means. Well, that means it was hanging because didn't they used to make them so that they would like hang from a frame? Oh, yes, that's true. Yes. And where's their 1936 podcast about dead bodies if they were so interested? 
Do you see what I mean about all of this? Look at all the pages. you like literally only halfway through. Are they all bits of bodies found in... In April 2009, Mr Kingsley attended at the Sandringham Police Station and relinquished a partial skeleton, which he described as being in possession of his father, a medical doctor, since the 1960s. It was a teaching skeleton obtained by Dr Barker as part of his medical studies. It was examined and it was found to be human remains. They need to have like an amnesty and just say anyone who's got bones, bring, bring them your in skeletons because, in, right? And anyone who's got any after we've said you can bring them in, you're in trouble if we find bones in your house. On the 22nd of December 2009, <laughs> Martha attended the Keel or Downs Police Station in regard <laughs> to the disposal of human bones in her possession. She had two bags of bones, <laughs> which belonged to her father, who was a doctor. All these doctors are hoarding. Yeah, but they're medical. They're learning with them. I'm ending with my favourite one. Okay. (laughs) This is it. There's no more. Right. Sorry, Nicole. Dr. Sergeant, Dr. Detective Sergeant (laughs) Wayne, won't say his surname, of the Mm -hmm. Homicide Squad attended a premises at Wayne. Insert address, I won't say. On the 12th of February 2009, and recovered a human skeleton. The remains were located in a rectangular fish tank and were handed in by Kathleen, I won't say her surname, who had indicated she had located the bones approximately two and a half years ago and had kept them for ornamental purpose. She stated that the bones had been found at the rear of her property, but the site had since been covered by approximately 15 metres of landfill. The 16 bones were subsequently examined by the forensic anthropologist who determined they all belonged to one individual and there was no evidence of trauma. Ancestry, sex, age, nor time since could be determined. They could not get DNA from the bodies. So she had them just as a decorative thing? In a fish tank. Next to the giant fork and spoon. Mm, but she handed them in, so that's okay. And the tiki from She found human bones yes. and she put them in a fish tank and kept them in her house and then just handed that shit back and the coroner has stamped this. That's a done deal. Police must just roll their eyes then when someone turns up with more, bo- oh, more Do bones. Do you see why they did not give a shit when you found that jacket? Yeah. Because this is the shit. This That's is actual bones. This is what's happening. People are just handing in bones, bodies. Yeah. There's no meat on them, though. They're just bones. Like if there was... There's one last one that's very quick that I don't understand why this person did this because this one's a little bit bizarre, right? Okay, yeah. 2009, Christine won't say her surname. She has a human skull and she thinks it's human. It is human. She doesn't take it to the cops. You know where she took it? Where? To Melbourne Museum. Well, that makes sense. No, it doesn't. Why not? Why wouldn't you take it to the cops? Well, because, I don't know. She gave it to the... She gave it. She walked in and handed it to the Melbourne Museum Information Officer. That's pretty much, and I'm not dissing the job, that's the person at the front counter. (laughs) Who was probably on her tea break and a bit annoyed at having to pop down a cream bun and deal with that crap. She said that the skull had been given to her when she was a child. And her uncle received it in about 1930. So she's had this. It doesn't say how old Christine is, but she's had it for a fair while. She's an adult. I'm guessing she's driven to the museum. And out of all that time of thinking what I'm going to do, she gave it to the information officer at the museum. I would do that, though. No, you wouldn't. Yes, You'd I take, would. No, you wouldn't. You'd take it. Yeah, but I always think I'm in trouble. So I, th- I would think if I went to the police that somehow they'd think that I had killed the person. How's the family that just said, oh, yeah, that skeleton would be in our house because we had it on the bookshelf? Your house would be haunted, people. Um, 
On the theme of bones, we've had an email from Deborah and Jamie. Uh, hi, ladies, nice things. Might need your help on this, Chanel, because there's oh. a word here you'll have to do. Uh, we'll be interested in blah, blah, blah. I'm now a bit prone to yelling out. Murder. At unexpected times too. So thank you for that. I now, had to say murder <laughs> in a piece to camera today. <laughs> piece to camera for those who do don't know sentence. what I'm talking about. Do the sentence on the news. Be Chanel on the it's, news. It's in my phone. It's in my phone. For those people who don't know what piece to camera is, it's that 15 seconds that you see the journo in the middle of their news story. Yes, and then we see a shot of the person walking into the court and then you're walking need, alongside them. I can't them with say it exactly, but no, because it'll, it'll, say, it'll say, well, I'll just do um, in news voice and, yeah, then, yeah. and then murder. Yeah. Okay. Um, victims recalled how the murder had affected them. <laughs> And I, in my head, I think I said a tinge of, I didn't say, I think I said it like, victims recalled how the murder had affected them. Like I Did said, nearly laugh, I almost it? said murder <laughs> during it. I thought of us. That's gorgeous. Uh, so Deborah and Jamie are from the Gimpy Bone Museum. That's where that email comes from. Hmm. And they tell us in their email, they are expecting to take delivery of a dead body. His name is Roger the Lodger. And he has a lovely story from his previous homestay family. And Deborah and Jamie Cook from the Gimpy Bone Museum have done as we requested, and we'd like you to do it too. Yes. They have recorded their message for us, their dead body story, because they've seen one or two. So let's have a little listen to Deborah and Jamie Cook from the Gimpy Bone Museum. Hi, Dee Dee. Hi, Chanel. Nice things, nice, nice things. Nice things, nice things, nice things. Very exciting uh, day here today at the Gimpy Bone Museum. Uh, we have had Roger the Lodger stop in to visit us. Uh, stop in to stay. He's a stop permanent in. lodger now. Yes. So, Jamie, I've just turned around and seen a couple of legs sitting unattended on a chair. Um, I'd like to send a photo of that to the girls for their Facebook page. Yeah, he um, he couldn't quite fit in the car in one piece because the, uh, the donors were uh, travelling on holiday, so he came out of the car a bit at a time. So... Put Dee Dee out of a misery, Jamie. Who is Roger the Lodger? Roger the Lodger is a medical skeleton purchased by the donor's father when he was doing his medical training back in the late 60s. And Roger has been a, a part of their family ever since. Most of the time while um, the lady who donated him was, was growing up, I think he took up uh, residence in one of the, the brother's bedrooms for a while when he moved out of home and... Um, it's just been uh, literally hanging around. <laughs> so he's a real human skeleton. He was used for medical training. He was probably bought at the bookshop at the University of Sydney. And he's lovely. And we're going to use him to study um, and to teach people more about bones and skeletons and human bodies. And um, we are generally going to love him and look after him, I think. Yeah. He's now part of the Gimpy Bone Museum skeleton crew family. But there's a couple of other really interesting and quite charming funny stories that we've been told as well about Roger and his arrival home. So if you'd like to hear more about that, we'd really love to talk to you. <laughs> Jamie's just picked up his hand, which is un unattached, and he's waving it at me. Waving goodbye. <laughs> we'll speak to you soon, ladies. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah and Jamie. Now, we, I think we need to actually ring them next episode, find out what the Gimpy Bone Museum is. Something where all the bones you were just talking about end up, I Correct. wonder. Mm, okay. Any more feedback? I do. Now, this is from Gemma on Facebook, and she's talking about 
when I had mentioned the body on the beach that was driven past people, mm. um, she says, hey, ladies, listening to episode 34 and the discussion of the boy found on the beach, my kids were there with my parents that day and saw it all. It was actually a good experience for my kids, started lots of discussion. Her kids are six and four. Well, that's a healthy thing, isn't it? Well, yeah, you could have a be safe in the water conversation. <laughs> I'm being, that was, yeah, no, I wasn't true. being a true. smart ass then. No, that is true. Yes. What a shock. We've got Morgan. I didn't know if you wanted me to do another one. We've got you Morgan. Do whatever you like. Like she I can says, tell you what to do. Nice things, Feisty, nice things. Feisty, strong, independent woman you are. Love from Singapore, she says. Oh, Singapore, that's exciting. I wanted to write to you as I only very recently saw a dead body. Um, she says she's from Sydney and originally was... There on New Year's Day, enjoying the sun at Clovelly? Clovelly? Is it Clovelly? Clovelly, yeah. Clovelly Beach, where a man was pulled out of the ocean and onto the rocks just across the inlet from us. I didn't realise just how ragdoll-like a lifeless human body really is, Mm. with the head and arms wildly flopping around. As a witness, your body just responds, gut... She had, you know, gut knots, her heart sank before your mind has even comprehended the scene. They spent over 30 minutes administering CPR and even multiple defibrillator. Did I say that right? I never say that word right. Defibrillator? Sounded fantastic. Yeah, defibrillator shocks, which both are so much more violent than I'd imagined. Mm. It would be. It would be, wouldn't it? When they, do, when they do CPR on people, they break ribs Ooh, and things, I know, don't they? Oh, I know. It's violent. Yeah. There were hundreds of us on the concrete piers all staring um, at this situation in shock. They said none of us had seen someone struggle in the calm water and then in desperate and awkward sadness as we all realised the resuscitation attempt was going on for too long for him to be likely to recover. Mm. We caught each other's eyes with a sudden realisation of our collective humanity and the true fragility of life. Mm. Apparently the man had a medical episode while snorkelling and hadn't necessarily drowned but had died in the water. Um, So strange that in one sunny second there was a swimmer enjoying the holiday and then there was the lifeless shell floating up against the rocks. I learnt there is no dignity in death, but the lifesavers and off-duty doctors on scene did try their best to bring him back. An intense way to start the year, but it has shaped how I choose to live my life and my perspective moving forward. Life's short and I never write to people to tell them I appreciate their work or how positively they add value to my life. So here's me telling you. Gosh, who was that? Morgan. Morgan. That was very well summed up, actually. Mm, wasn't it? What happened there? Hmm. Uh, Deborah emailed us. Hi, Dee Dee, Chanel. And Kirsten gets a mention <gasps> there. Yes. So she should. For sure. Uh, um, Deborah's listening from Manchester, UK. Uh, she's studying and hoping to work in pathology, lots of dead bodies. My mm. first dead body was an elderly lady at the nursing home I used to work at. She hated me while she was alive. <laughs> she had dementia and thought I was someone else. <laughs> But I was always very fond of her. I went to see her a few hours after she'd passed away. I touched her hand and it was freezing, mm. a cold that only comes with death. Then I looked at her face and she looked back at me. The nurses hadn't closed her eyes immediately after she died. And because of rigor mortis, they couldn't be closed now. Oh, no, they no. were stuck open. It was a bit unnerving, but it was nice to see her before she left for good. Uh, best wishes, Deborah. And Kerry on Facebook has a suggestion for an episode, which I will follow up on, La Pasca. 
Gualita of Mexico, the corpse bride in the window. That sounds interesting. We'll find out more about that. Uh, she says, I've seen one dead body in my time. I was in the room where my ex's grandfather passed. It was a very sad experience, but also good in the sense he didn't have to suffer anymore. His funeral was the first open casket I'd been to. The funeral home did a terrific job on his facial oh. makeup, but they forgot about the hands. Oh, no. They were a horrible colour and not something that I think I'll forget. I had to sit in the front row with the family and try not to look at his hands through the whole funeral. Thanks again for your podcast, Kerry. Oh, Dear, yes, you would be distracted, wouldn't you? And also on feedback, we got a lot of emails about the Casketeers. Yes. I watched it. Oh, did you? It's very funny. Is it? Yeah, they're finding like a funny side of death like us. I flicked past it last night mm. and my husband didn't want to watch it with me because he oh. thinks, God knows why, that I'm altogether too obsessed with death anyway. Mm. Who? Why would anyone think that? So he made me watch something mm. else instead. Well, if you're obsessed with dead bodies, email us. What's the email address? Deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com. I wasn't confident, thanks. <laughs> Dead Bodies is created by DD Dunleavy and Chanel Vella and produced by Kirsten Lim Howe. Contact us at deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com.